0: I wonder, if you're here in Australia like me, are you including Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices, images, values in your marketing as an intrinsic part of your Australian audience? Today, I'm so excited that we're looking at digital marketing through an Indigenous lens with one of the nation's top creative agencies, Galimba. Hi, I'm Sarah Spence. I grew a content agency from just me to 20 people inside two years. So you'd think I'd have my shit together. And even though I try to come at everything with a rebellious curiosity, I've been so focused on growing this thing that I'm a bit behind in the trends. Join me on this journey to find out what's actually happening in the world of marketing. Welcome to the Content Rebels. I've got a question for you. How inclusive is your marketing? I'm not talking about tokenism or speaking to a particular marginalised group for a particular product that has been created just for that group. Really, I'm talking about being inclusive in all marketing, always. I feel that even with all the progress of the modern world, this is a space that has a lot of catching up to do. And how do we make our marketing genuinely inclusive anyway? Well, David Williams is the Executive Director of Galimba, a full-service creative agency specialising in culturally relevant design and content for and with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities.
1: Good morning. Pleasure to be here.
0: And I know you can't see it, but David has the most awesome, vibrant artwork behind him. He tells me it was originally created for a trade show a beautiful deep red and it has Galimba's tagline along one side, creative that connects.
1: We moved into our new office. There's a great big wall here, so it works really well as a background.
0: I was talking to him from Dark and Dunge country on the central coast of New South Wales. And we started our chat with me learning which mob he's from.
1: So I'm a proud walker man. Um, that country is uh, is inland. From Bundaberg, uh, around the West Burnett region, uh, north of Sherberg, Heidsfold is Grandma's country, or more specifically, um, Bam Bam Springs, uh, great great, uh, grandfather, old Alec Little. So, um, I'm coming to you from, uh, Turbul and Yalbury country here in, um, um, around the corner from Kurilpa Point. Um, Brisbane is often known as Mianjin. It was referred to as Mianjin, but that's a specific part of the city around the Botanic Gardens where on the other side, in West End, uh, close mm-hmm. to the Kirilpa area of, uh, of Maywa, the River.
0: Beautiful part of the country. That's correct. Uh, so let's start with learning a little bit about Galimba. How did it start?
1: Yes, yeah, certainly, Sarah. Well, Galimba, in, in my grandmother's language, and my language simply means today. Uh, the idea behind that is we have the stories and culture of our old people passed down through many generations, passed down to where we are today because it's what we do today that has an impact on tomorrow. In language, we say, Gidapa, dawn of the new day, tomorrow. But cultural ways, um, it's the here and now that's important. So we believe the power and process of storytelling and the role this has within communities. So as an Indigenous creative agency, we get to work with um, many great organisations around um, the country and also uh, internationally to essentially use creativity as, as a tool to help elevate those stories that allows, I guess, non-Indigenous Australians or the wider community um, through learn, learning, sharing and celebrating First Nations culture.
0: Amazing. And so, yeah, you're, you're an agency that your, your whole reason for being is to put that storytelling and collaboration at the forefront. What, what does that actually look like from a day-to-day basis?
1: Well, look, I, I might just go back before that. Uh, Glim has been operating, uh, we're 15 years old this year and really was born out of a a, a need to, I guess, uh, address a lack of culturally appropriate communication material that was happening around in the time. A, a lot of organisations were on their early journeys of developing their reconciliation action plan. I, I believe the, the Reconciliation Australia RAP program started 2006, 2007, and um, in 2008, Kevin Rudd delivered his historic apology speech, and that really sparked a lot of conversation, both, you know, in boardrooms from an organisation point of view, what are we doing, how can we, you know, best engage uh, with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, audiences, etc.? cetera. And um, so it, it's an amazing trajectory seeing where, it was back then to, to where we are today. I think, you know, certainly the visibility of culture is happening a lot more. You know, we got a long way to go, but, you know, the, the thing that certainly that I focus on is a big part of what, what, what I do and, and what we do at Calimbra is using that creativity as a tool to essentially start conversations and inform and celebrate the rich, vibrancy that our First Nations people have in this country.
0: What does it then mean for the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people to see themselves in, in marketing and see themselves in, I guess the the reconciliation action plan efforts that are real <laughs> uh, of various organizations?
1: look, I think um it's it's that age old thing. you can't be what you can't see. So I think uh, you know large organizations are really stepping up efforts to engage and have a presence of, of culture within their day-to-day business. Uh, what, one of the interesting things is that there's a real rise in the Aboriginal middle class. So you think about a market segment from a brand point of view and trying to reach out to various sectors. If an organisation isn't considering or doesn't have the Aboriginal market segment in, in front of mind or part of their, their strategy, they're really losing out on you know a big Part of you know potential audience and customers. Yeah. The census that was done back in uh, 2011, I think it was 2012, around then. Um, I don't, I can't quote the exact numbers, but say around um, bottom end of three percent um, on the, the recent c- census. I believe that's up to three point eight percent. So you've actually got this um, this growing existence of of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people within Australia. And certainly from a market segment point of view, it's a big opportunity for organisations and brands to think about how to communicate directly, you know, to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander potential customers.
0: Okay, let's look at this together because it's so interesting, isn't it? There's a numbers argument there that David is talking about. The number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia is growing. And so is this emerging middle class. But I guess there's a moral argument too, the one that says we should be inclusive in marketing, not just because it's a good business decision, but also because it's the right thing to do. And that led me to wonder, how do we get it right? So I took the opportunity to ask David, how do we approach marketing and do that in an inclusive way? What should brands be doing?
1: That's a great question, Sarah, and something that um, I'm hoping that a lot of people can can take some points out of this discussion and implement that into their their kind of approach to this. I'll probably start with what not to do because it's something that that we find quite regularly. We had an example yesterday. Actually, we had a large uh, a multinational. I won't say what industry it is because it'll probably make it too obvious. But uh, they approached us to do a pitch to um, to work on one of their products and. The way that they were asking questions and just kind of approaching it was was very much a, this is a good opportunity for a smaller agency like us to work with a big brand like them. The nature of the conversation was very condescending and it was quite disrespectful. And we just said to him, look, we went back to him and said we're not going to be involved in this. And we gave specific reasons around that because I think it's important that people can understand the value of what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have within the creative process. And it's not something that, you know, um, a a lot of people expect this stuff for free. The the networks and cultural knowledge that inherently Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people throughout a lifetime, you know, that we grow and and, and understand there's, there's an inherent value in that, that, I think um really needs to be understood from a perspective that it's not something we can just give away for, for, for nothing um, because if, if if there is a product that is being marketed or something that's going to be done, then you know, the, the, the best starting point is to actually acknowledge that there's value in that and have that respectful conversation. And what I would often hope in these instances and it has happened with Glinda in the past is those long-term relationships. It's a two-way learning process as well. Um, quite often, you know, we've had organizations approach us thinking that, you know, we're going to learn a lot more from them than what they are going to do from us. So we need to really hone in on the fact that it's a two-way learning process. And 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 it's great having those conversations with organizations that may be very green uh very early on in their i guess cultural competency and by having those relationships you know you can grow that knowledge and grow that confidence so you know our non-indigenous um you know clients and partners you can really see them on that journey and and really being more confident in engaging with aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and it's really it really comes down to those relationships And I can't stress that enough because we often get asked to, you know, run a process around, you know, creating something. But for us, it's about enabling our clients to become better informed and um, develop a level of competency that, you know, they are not relying on us for all of those steps of the way. Um, And that's really important. And I think we've, we've seen some really good results of that with our clients that. You know they've they've really learned along the way, and and at the end of the day, they're not always going to get it right. And with that too, we're not always going to get it right. You're going to make mistakes along the way, but that's that's part of the journey and part of the process. So I think it really comes down to that respectful engagement. And I shared this at, at the content summit earlier in the year, is where we've had organisations who ring us up out of the blue, and they will ask, you know, if we can go in on them. As part of a bid process or um, a panel submission, whatever it may be, but we've never heard of these organisations, and that's okay. But generally, we're expected to jump at that opportunity and say, "Yes, we'll we'll, we'll do all this." But it's always at the last minute, and, and we always push back to that and say, "Well, you know, you need to 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 do the homework and build those relationships earlier on because." We're not going to jump through all these hoops just to, you know, allow you to fulfil the criteria in this um, the, its mission. And just on that too, it is quite obvious to us when we we know there's a component in there that requires an indigenous organisation such as us to be in with those particular bids. And you can really sniff them out quickly. Those are the ones that we we always uh, decline and we even had a um, one a couple of years ago where a large agency contacted us to be part of their bid and and they were very um it wasn't a very good good relationship to start with and asked for you know a component for us to put in with that bid and we asked some more questions and and they they didn't in- include what we wanted in there and they just went ahead with the submission anyway
0: but with your name still on it
1: that's right and we contacted that organisation who they were submitting to and just say, look, just a heads up that this organisation has put our name on there and we haven't given permission for that. And sadly, that's that happens, but hopefully there's lessons that can be learned from that and that people will, you know, do the respectful thing
0: next time. And I'm hearing, yeah, that I mean, the, the best advice here is actually just to come at this topic with, with respect and also you know, absolutely no ego uh, in order to learn and to listen Um, and also to come at it not as an afterthought. That's right. Not as, oh, crap, we better, you know, we better include First Nations voices. So quick, how can we do that? Instead, actually plan it in from the beginning and go, how can we, yeah, I mean, and not only just because, sure, there's a growing segment of the population being the Aboriginal middle class, but also just because it's the right thing to do.
1: That's right, and you touched on that before too, Sarah. Ego, um, you know, we've we've worked with many great agencies over the years, but it, it's interesting because with a lot of um, agencies out there, there's a lot of egos out there as well. And I think it's um it's interesting when you might have a creative director or somebody within these agencies that have worked their way up in the top of their game, but when they're talking to us, if if they come. To us with that same ego, it's, it's not going to be a happy ending because uh, the reality is they can't do what they need to do without us. And, and for, for, for those egos to be in the room often with the loudest voices, you know, it's, it's a quick learning curve because they quickly understand that they need to close their mouth and open their ears, it's particularly from a community engagement point of view. You know they're not going to care if they're the the number one creative director in the in the country. You know it's um it's just that respectful uh, understanding and approach that um that will get the best results.
0: Absolutely, I I've talked a lot on this podcast with other people about ego in in marketing, and I I just don't I don't understand how there can be ego considering our our industry and and you know the people that we're we're trying to influence being, you know, audiences out there, There, everything changes so fast and it's changing all the time that if, like, I very much feel if I have even an, you know, an ounce of ego, then I'm going to be falling behind because I'm going to feel, you know, satisfied that I know everything, but it is impossible to know everything. <laughs> uh, I just, yeah. And it's actually been part of, I think part of our success is that we definitely don't have egos and we are happy to, um, and in fact, it really invested in actually listening to our clients and who they are as humans, not just, we, know, we don't just see them with these giant dollar signs in our eyes.
1: I mean, it's interesting because um, from a cultural point of view, if you flip that on its head, we can't do what we do without the support of our community. And, and it's often a common thing, you know, amongst mob data if people are getting too big for their own shoes... First people to pull you in the line, you know, is community. Um, and it's 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 interesting because you you constantly need to check check in on that because you know we've been fortunate to have some great success, but it's it's to be able to approach it and be humble about that. Share the wins where we we can, but uh, it's it's important that yeah, you approach it in the right way because yeah, if you if you get a little bit too too big or that ego creeps in. You know, it's our community, it's our family, it's our elders who are the ones who are going to pull you in line, quick, smart.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think as well, like it, it's good to celebrate success, um, but ultimately, if you, you know, if you're not sharing it with that view of, you know, in your case, it's the Indigenous community, but even you know, whether it's team or clients or family or whomever, then you do have ego if you're wanting to shout it from the rooftops because it's going to benefit you. Like, yes, that's exciting to do and it's okay, but you've you've also got to just see it in the in the light of you know what that means for the people around you and how that benefits the people around you, not just that kind of bigger picture. Sure. But it's aligned to talk then about a kind of tokenism versus genuine inclusion. Because from my perspective, I feel like there is a lot of tokenism out there. There's, you know, you'd see perhaps like this beautiful background behind you, but you'd you'd perhaps see some licensed, uh, you know, Aboriginal artwork, or you'd see, um, you know, see Aboriginal people as talent in advertisements or marketing of some kind. But how do you know when it's actually genuine inclusion and when it's tokenism? And can you guys, can you sniff that out a mile away as well?
1: Yeah, look, it's it's an interesting question, Sarah, because as far as um imparting that knowledge onto somebody else it's really hard because i i can sniff it a mile away but to be able to say okay sarah this is what you need to look out for it's hard to explain that i think um you know certainly you know brands out there who who have got really i guess good relationships or there's there's a very they're very transparent about how they've gone about this and you know that's really important because it's not just going you know, into a community or an organisation or or a group, and just taking without any any kind of uh, respectful engagement there. And if that organisation is not transparent about how they've come across doing that, you know, it's really it's really obvious. And and I think inherently, you know, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art and, and you know a lot of our creative there's that deep story and connection. And um and if something's just gone out there without any of that background or explanation, it's really obvious as well. So it's something that we can certainly sniff out. And and I think too, because we're all talking to each other as well. So if some, somebody's done something, we can, you know, it's it's often what we call the Murray grapevine or the quarry grapevine. That news travels really fast. And um yeah, and and generally if it's done once incorrectly. It will often get back to that organisation, and they tend to not do that again.
0: Yeah. Okay. Interesting. But would uh, would even if they that brand that had you know gone down the tokenism route to start with, and then became aware that they weren't doing quite the right thing, and then you know did move towards genuine inclusion, would would that repair enough to make it make you guys want to actually purchase from them or does it depend? Does it be, depend how they take the news that, hey? It's
1: a bit of a sliding scale, I guess. Yeah. Look, I, I, I might use an example. A um, while ago there was an organisation who wanted to do something in a specific location. It was a massive event that they were having and they said, we want to use a language name from that area. And we said, okay, and they said, we want you guys to, you know, work with the relevant people to to get that, you know, approved and, and then work on the creative for that. It was like, okay. And the next um, thing that came back to them was, and we got two weeks to do it. And then we just went, hold on, right? So the big thing is are these timelines because to get the outcome of, you know, genuine um, engagement, it's not going to happen overnight. You know, some of these things can take a very long time and that needs to be uh, factored in to uh, briefs that are coming uh, from you know, from organisations. So if somebody's going, oh, we want to be really respectful, but you've got two weeks to be respectful, <laughs> that's not going to happen. That's actually starting from a place of disrespect. But it's, it's, it's often a good conversation that we can have with potential clients around that because they know that the next time that they're going to want to do this, it's, it's something for them to keep in mind. And the other one too, the the big one, particularly for a lot of not just us as a a creative agency, but the Indigenous business sector in general, Mm -hmm. two weeks of the year, Reconciliation Week and NAIDOC Week. Now, the amount of times we get phone calls literally the last minute to say, hey, can you do something for us for NAIDOC Week or whatever it may be, it's just like I feel for all the Indigenous catering companies out there because they get these last minute ones, Reconciliation Week, oh, let's have a, Morning tea and and they, they're calling in these um caterers at the last minute and and it's really it's just terrible, Sarah. And 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 my response to that is, well, no, that's great that you're thinking of using an indigenous business, but reconciliation week or NAIDOC week is just two weeks out of 52 weeks of the year, right? And you know why are you not using that you know elsewhere? Um, because yeah, it just starts off as this situation where it's not going to end well. And often it's it's those indigenous staff members that are the ones who are tasked with organizing these events. And that's again not the right way to go about doing it.
0: Yeah. I mean it must be pretty like exhausting also to have to continually educate hmm. people.
1: Yeah, look, I think you get you, you you build a bit of a thick skin and get quite resilient around this and also, um, purposely avoid those situations where you know it's just going to be uh, heavy, like a cultural load that is just like the same conversations. And sometimes you can put up with it, knowing that there's going to be a, a positive outcome at the end of it. But sometimes it's just draining. I, I think you, you you learn how to navigate that space, uh, as I've I've been able to learn how to do that over the years. But you know, as we always say, it's a journey. We'll get there.
0: I'm aware that obviously podcasting, what we're doing today, it's an oral storytelling medium, and I guess you could say that using traditional artwork as branded design is, you know, a similar idea. Uh, you know, in trying to not even just pay homage, but be respectful to the, the the First Nations culture. But are these appropriate ways to combine digital technology and traditions from First Nations peoples? Or again, is it is, it, is this just is it tokenism to even try and correlate the two?
1: No, look, I think um think about it from a point of view that, you know, we are culturally dynamic people. You know, our culture is not static. It doesn't sit just here, it evolves over time. And what I mean by that is we're using the tools and technology around us to tell story. You know, we're telling traditional stories from many thousands of years ago to, you know, current stories, but they can be executed in a wide range of different ways. You know, it's not just about crushed up ochre on, on, on bark or, or, you know, that's, that's evolved into acrylic on canvas and all these, these different mediums. I mean, my canvas is, um, is the Adobe Creative Suite in a Wacom tablet. Um, you know, that's not something that was happening in my ancestors' days, but it doesn't differentiate, you know, that story that's being told. It's just a different execution and utilising the tools that are around us. And I guess, you know, the influences that happen along the way Uh, If I look to the the music genre, for example, where, you know, hip-hop has really been used from, you know, very many First Nations musicians as a way to tell their stories and something that cuts through um, and you can, it's amazing. When you see, you know, that idea or that story evolve into something that's just completely different to what people expect, you know, it's a pretty exciting thing. It was probably earlier on in the Glimber days where we we've had people saying, well, you know, your artwork is isn't, an isn't artwork, it's graphic design. And, you know, that's when you're having that conversation around using all these different anecdotes to explain that, you know, my computer is my canvas. In the early days I was, and I still do, um, you know, ink, ink on paper and from time to time and, and use acrylic, but um, majority of my work is all done on, on computer. But just because it's on computer doesn't mean that it's any less applicable from a, from an Indigenous art perspective.
0: I've never thought about the fact that, uh, and I think obviously you know far better than me, but in Aboriginal Indigenous culture is uh, it's so commoditized. And that's that tokenism side of it, right? You know, and it's, it's, I guess, exported as a vision of Australia and all of that kind of stuff. But I've never th- even thought about the fact that, of course, like every culture, it does it does progress and grow and change and evolve. What, what are the hallmarks of modern Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture?
1: Well, I guess uh, modern Aboriginal culture is just Aboriginal culture. You know, I don't think there's anything around, you know, traditional or modern because you think about what it was 5,000 years ago, would you be saying the same thing back then? You know, it's, it's 60,000 years you know, five thousand years ago, would you be calling it modern? It comes back to you know the Galimbos. The today is the here and now, and that's the important thing, right? Because it's 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 that it's that time and moment where we 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 have our story, and it's what we are doing. You know, Galimba today. You know, for tomorrow. So I think um I, I don't think you can really try to yeah, label it as modern and traditional. I just see it as as who we are today. We have the stories of our old people. We have the culture that we've, you know, that's been passed down and that we learn um, because then, you know, it's what we do today for that next generation, you know, people of tomorrow.
0: Oh, hold up. Okay, important. (laughs) For me to consider Indigenous culture from that binary of traditional and modern it goes to show that we all have a lot to learn, and it's one of the reasons I was so thrilled to be talking to David. And when he explains that modern Aboriginal culture is just Aboriginal culture, it's sort of a no brainer and a lightning bolt moment all at the same time. It makes me realise how much we could all continue to learn from creative agencies like Kalimba. So let's find out more about the work David and his team does, and how that's changed over the last 15 years.
1: So uh, where we started off was was more around graphic design and artwork. So we would have clients who would come to us and say, can you design a brochure to to stop people smoking, right? It was evident pretty quickly to know that there's a whole big piece of work here, you know, from from the strategy, you know, start to finish, the research evaluation, all those components to inform that brochure, whatever it ends up being, and even if it needs to be something else, um, that strategy will inform that, that, um, you know, really embedding that into our process as an organisation. And, um, you know, like all agencies, we we go up in numbers in terms of headcount and go down, and and we're at a good size now where, you know, we can pull in um, the right people at the right time, whether it be, you know, uh, a film production that um that is part of an overall campaign or researchers or whatever it may be, that it's that's an important part of delivering that work to the client. But I guess it's um it's really involved in terms of just you know instead of just doing this one design component, it's actually you know a full full um full suite of creative services. And we've got some great digital partners as well. You know a lot of our artworks are now being animated. Uh, so we've got a great digital partner who we work with that um, that you know they really understand how we work and, and vice versa. So you know when we're when we're bringing these artworks to life, they're done in a way that is going to be quite impactful for our clients and audiences, and really evolving how we tell those stories as well. And, and I guess animation is just one really good example of that.
0: Yeah, for sure. Do you do you find it? Easy to because it sounds like you you approach things from a similar perspective to we do in that it's all about it's about the ideas it's got, you know we we started as a copywriting agency you know or copywriting freelancing and then agency of basically being able to take briefs and and create some stuff um, and pretty quickly as well realize the need for strategy and all of that to to really have a great outcome um, but something I've definitely struggled with over the years is how to make it easy for our clients to shop us because effectively they need to buy the the strategy and the brain work that goes into that before we can really know what's worthwhile investing in after that. Yeah, Do you have a similar challenge?
1: Yeah. Look, I, I think we're quite lucky because over the years, we've been able to really refine how we work and what we offer. Uh, and it's almost those add-ons as well. So, somebody might you know, an organisation might be developing a reconciliation action plan, for example. We go, right, we want to uh, commission an artwork to, to tell this story. And they might look to a variety of different people out there. There's some amazing, talented, you know, freelancers or sole operators that do that. There's other um, agencies similar to us that do a similar thing. Um, and, you know, once they've kind of decided on who they're going to go with, we can go through that that creative process to develop that artwork and it's interesting, when we present that artwork to a client, we do it in a very staged approach where we 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 tell that story and, and um, execute that narrative with the visual components of what that artwork is. And often our clients will say, oh, wow, that's really great. It'd be really good to do that animated, you know, so it's animated and, that's, and then we say, oh, well, that's a that's good, good point. Here's what we preferred earlier, you know, and, and just kind of taking people on that journey as well. Um, and then, you know, extend that to various points of merchandise for the organisation. And the other week, we um, we launched one with Woolworths Group, their reconciliation action plan, which was a, an amazing client to work with because of their Indigenous staff and the Indigenous leadership within the organisation and their Indigenous reference group or advisory group. So just hands, hands down, just just amazing to work with. And the artwork that we developed, you know, when we presented that, we we displayed that on we did mock-ups of, you know, in supermarkets on the side of trucks and all of these things. And um, and to their credit, they ended up um particularly with the truck, um, they ended up putting that on the side of one of their, their delivery trucks. And when we launched that down at carriage works last month, yeah, it was a surprise um visitor to the uh the audience when the truck drove past and honked its horn. And, uh, and everybody turned around and saw this artwork on the side of a truck. So I think um, anticipating, you know, and really being bold with where artwork and creative can go. So you're planting these seeds in the, in the in the minds of our clients. So at some stage down the track, they're going to come back and say, oh, we like what you did here. Do you reckon we could do it? And, yeah, and, and really kind of um, pushing forward from that way.
0: Yeah, amazing. You're like us, like brave ideas for Bold brands and making it all about that long-standing relationship.
1: That's right, because it doesn't cost anything to to mock up some some pretty big things on the side of buildings, and um, all it takes is somebody to to um, buy in with that idea and execute it.
0: Yeah, so cool. As a full service creative agency, how do you approach creating strategies that use multiple channels through that Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander lens?
1: I think um you know it's understanding what what the traditional media buying process is and um and while we don't do that as an agency we work with our clients to understand the reach of that and you know execute the creative accordingly but I think it's interesting because I I think government are a lot better than than corporate clients around this is is when you Wanting that reach and frequency of, you know, a particular campaign, health campaign, for example, because that's that's probably um, the most common is uh, when you're sending that out in, for example, remote communities where English is is their second, third, or fourth language. That will need to get translated into a number of different languages, and we got some um, partners that we work with that that do those translations. So really, utilizing those. Those local, you know, radio networks and and um, media networks to be able to, you know, get that get those campaigns out, and I guess getting a real hold and understanding of of the reach of that as well, and it changes from campaign to campaign. But um, but that's probably yeah a good example of of utilizing those channels the um, best way we can.
0: Final question, and I don't know then if this is, has been as relevant to our chat, but I'm going to ask it anyway. But the final question that we've been asking everyone along the way is around ChatGPT and AI, which obviously has screamed onto the scene this year. Um, do you view it as a, a friend, a foe, or a flash in the pan?
1: I, I just see it as, you know, it's something that's happening that we can't ignore it. I would just take the approach of seeing if it's something that works for us. In terms of just another tool in the toolkit, then it might, might be worth utilizing that from time to time. But I, for us, it's, it, it's really, it's irrelevant because we've got a, a wonderful, um, copywriter that works on staff with us. And, um, I don't see any place for chat GPT while, um, we've got the amazing skills in house. But I guess when you've got emerging technologies and, you know, the nature of the business landscape, if it's continually changing and evolving, that I guess it's a Kodak example, right? Like you need to to change with the times or you're going to go out of business. I mean, I don't see chat GPT having any effect on who we are as an agency because, you know, the quality and is our work is is the creative itself and the way it's executed and um and the story that's behind it. And that's something that you can't get with AI. Well, you probably can, but the value in us is those those close relationships we have with our clients and the ability to um, develop those stories, bring that to, to the surface and execute that, you know, in the way that we do. I, I don't see ChatGPT or any of those AI programs doing anything, you know, that's going to replace what we're doing at this point in time as an agency.
0: No, I hear you. I think... Um... I, I do worry as well uh, though with with it. I mean, there's lots of things to to worry about as lots of as well as lots of good things to celebrate about it. But you know, Chat GPT, for instance, the language model that it draws any response from is uh, equivalent to a, a one human reading a thousand pages a day for four thousand years. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think that's a you know massive language corpus of of text and information that it's been trained on, but just what voices are absent from that and therefore what is that inherent bias and how are we ever going to be able to solve that bias, Uh, whether that be racial bias or, you know, obviously Indigenous bias because we have not been profiling and publishing Indigenous voices to the same level as white voices, but obviously forever. And so if you're talking about that amount of language, and that amount of information, how are we ever going to write that balance and, therefore, how are we ever going to make these tools be, be unbiased? I don't, I don't know how that would ever happen.
1: No, that's, that's a really good point. And I think um, people understand that exact point to say, well, you can't have an inclusive conversation or if you're utilising those AI tools, those sample sizes of the audience in which you're communicating to don't exist within that initial sample size. It's it's basically whitewashing a you know an idea at the end, right? Because there's no indigenous voices in there.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And it, even if even if we you know somehow set about a process to to ensure there was, it will it will never it could never be balanced. Hmm. And and it's you know inherently also English. Uh, there are some other languages within it now, but not you know, again, it's it's just it's like there's that um example about two AI chatbots. I can't remember who what the details were, but they basically set two AI chatbots to talk to each other, and it took something like only forty five minutes for them to start to abuse one another um, and be racist toward one another, even though they had no defined race, obviously. Um, and then it only took them a further, I think, hour until they developed their own language that none of us could even understand.
1: <laughs> that's incredible. Wow. Yeah. And it's interesting that that race perspective because obviously it's a learned behaviour. You know, the, the thing that's often said is people aren't born racist. It's the environment in which they learn that, that I guess, starts to make racist people racist, right? So if you've got an AI chat, what thing happening, that sample size is coming from, you know, something that is obviously, yeah, happened along the way that people default to these racist interaction, which is, I think that's just a, that's mind-blowing, a real eye-opener.
0: What an important point to finish on. AI tools can only draw on the information that has gone before, and if that information is predominantly from a particular viewpoint and a particular type of voice then there's going to be bias there. And, well, that's really dangerous, right? There's a lesson there for all of us as we move to speed up our own productivity. Some things are just best slowed down and spoken about with real people, not AI. I hope you got as much out of this conversation with David Williams of Galimba as I have. I'm looking forward to heading into a more inclusive, diverse, and tolerant marketing world together. Thanks for joining me on this journey. If you want to stay rebellious in how you practice marketing, how you show up in your workplace, and how you live your life, please subscribe to the Content Rebels wherever you listen to your podcasts. This podcast was recorded on a Wabakul and Dark and Jun Country. Produced by Pod and Pen Productions.